Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. Hi, my name is Richard Howard. I'm a senior business development manager for AWS Startups. Joining me today on the podcast is Chris Mayers, CBE. Uh, if you don't know Chris, Chris was uh, the co-founder and CTO of MetaSwitch Networks, which after you know overnight success of nearly 40 years, uh, just sold to, to Microsoft. He's a venture partner at Entrepreneur First. He's an angel investor in around 92 companies chairman of Magic Pony when it was sold to Twitter. And moving on to some, some more athletic endeavors, he biked 3,600 miles across the US to raise enough money so that around 4,500 people could have their sight restored. As a younger man, he competed in the Alpine Downhill at the 1988 Paralympics, and he captained the British disabled water ski team uh, in three world championships. So uh, probably the, the biggest intro I've ever given to anybody. Chris, thank you very much for joining me. <laughs> embarrassingly long thanks thanks Richard. <laughs> i was only going to go with the with the startup stuff but then you know having done the research i was like i didn't quite realize like the athletic endeavors as well and i thought it was you know worth mentioning uh very good the one thing that you didn't put in there which i'm actually quite pleased about is i'm a trustee of the raspberry pi foundation which i think is a pretty amazing organization i mean partly because the raspberry pi is a fantastic uh piece of technology but also because the foundation um, is on a mission to improve digital skills for young people around the world, which I think is a very worthwhile endeavor. No, absolutely. Um, as somebody with three, just for myself, I've got I've got three young boys, so I'm excited to get them uh, working on the Raspberry Pi. I, th I think you know STEM uh, education in schools isn't exactly as good as it should be. So I'm luckily in technology, so I know enough of these things that I can kind of open them up to it. So you know things like the Raspberry Pi are are incredible. So yeah, so thank you again for, for joining me. Kind of listing all those achievements. So the first thing that I wanna wanted to ask you before we kind of dive into your career and advice for people is is what what drives you to to kind of succeed across like a, a range of different things? Uh, interesting question. Uh, I don't know which where's the chicken and where's the egg, but being blind, I think you need to be quite stubborn and determined in order to be successful. And I'm not sure whether my stubbornness and determination has come because I'm blind or my stubbornness uh, preceded my blindness but allowed me to be successful despite being <laughs> blind. So, <laughs> But it, I think it has had an influence. Uh, I've yeah. always been quite competitive. I grew up in a family of five children, all of whom had uh, sight difficulties, but there were definitely no prisoners taken. And uh, so that was a fairly, um, uh, you know, a fairly uh, competitive environment to grow up in. Uh, which I'm sure uh, did something to develop my character, not necessarily always in a good way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I'm trying to develop the the competitive nature between my kids right now. <laughs> Just, uh, I don't know if you <laughs> have you seen the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. It's on Netflix. No, I haven't, no. Um, so it's, it's incredible. Whether whether you're a fan of basketball or not, it's an incredible documentary. And, it, you know, he is, yes, the greatest basketball player in the world, but also probably the most competitive person in the world. Right. You know, not just in basketball, but across anything. Like he, he used to like bet his uh, his teammates, which suitcase would come off like the luggage carousel first. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know the sort of guy you mean. He famously, he lost to somebody in ping pong, famously bought a ping pong table, practiced in his room until he was good enough and then went downstairs and beat him. <laughs> and so I'm trying to, you know, I'm taking parenting lessons 
from from this documentary to try and turn my uh, children into competitive sociopaths. Uh, hopefully, that I can then retire early. That's that's my personal goal. Um, that's interesting. Um, uh, that table tennis, buying the table tennis table to, to to get good, reminds me of one of the guys actually in the same cohort at Entrepreneur First that, that Magic Pony were in. So a business called Tractable. Um, and they're doing pretty well now. I think they raised a Series C recently. And uh, when Alex Daliak, who's the CEO of Tractable, first applied to Entrepreneur First, uh, we rejected him because we said, you know, you don't really have any machine learning skills. Machine learning is pretty important. So he thought, right, no problem. Went off, got himself a, a master's in machine learning over the next 12 months and came back and applied again. Joined, joined the program. <laughs> and he's now running one of the most successful companies in, in our portfolio. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> um, awesome. So before I, I kind of dive into the like the investing side of your knowledge, can you talk a little bit about MetaSwitch? Because I think that's a story that, that a lot of people don't know. Um, so it'd yeah. be great to hear from your side. Yeah, sure. Uh, so founded that business uh, in 1981. We started out as a communications software business, uh, selling protocol software to large players in the computer industry. So um, our big customers in the early years were people like Hewlett-Packard, Cisco, uh, Microsoft, IBM. And then we sort of made this naive decision in the mid-90s, late 90s, that we were selling our software to people who were then putting it onto hardware platforms and selling the appliance for like 10 times the price. So um, we thought, well, you know, how hard can hardware be? Uh, we, we'll, we'll make some hardware ourselves and we'll, we'll cut out the middleman. Well, so the clue is in the name, isn't it? It's called hardware for a reason. <laughs> and and uh, we were pretty naive, but um, our timing was also terrible. And we went, we started developing our um, hardware platform, which we we're going to sell directly to telcos. Um, just, well, we, we brought it to market just about at the time when the telco bubble burst um, in the early 2000s. Um, so we now had a product um, but no market. As it happens, that turned out to be quite good because the product was certainly not fit for purpose at that stage. Nobody was buying, but it did mean that we could get it into field trials for um, a couple of years. By the time people were doing capital expenditure again, we actually had something that was um, worth buying. And um, several of our competitors in the meantime had uh, gone to the wall. So we then developed that business quite successfully, and that became the big part of our business. The good news is that uh, about, I suppose, four years ago now, the telco sector and the network operator sector did come around to the view that the software is actually the really valuable bit yeah. and the, the hardware is just the enabler. So we sort of then were able to move back to our core strengths, which is in developing software, software and, in fact, moved over very much to a cloud-based software solution for 5G networking, um, which is what uh, Microsoft were interested in acquiring. Yeah, when you were, you know, when you were building it from, you know, back in back in the eighties, this was, you know, one of those crazy businesses that decides to, you know, make profit and doesn't take outside capital. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely correct. Uh, yeah, we we bootstrapped that business uh, from day one, uh, profitable every year for the first twenty five years, I think, until we finally decided to take. Um, some uh, VC investment. And the reason we took that money uh, was, was twofold, really. 
Um, one was that um, it did allow us to release liquidity for all the employees. And we had a, a company zoned at that stage by an employee benefit trust with the sole purpose of that trust being to distribute profits back to the, all the employees based on, on contribution over the previous period of time. And so when we had a secondary investment, we were able to have life-changing events for quite a lot of the employees, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, my, my PA, for example, who was obviously not near the top of the pecking order, uh, nonetheless, she was able to pay off her mortgage, which, you know, for her, super important thing in her life. Absolutely, yeah. So that was one reason for taking, taking investment. The second was we felt that if we had a tier one VC investing in the business, um, it would open doors that we couldn't open ourselves. Um, and that indeed turned out to be the case. So we were very fortunate to have Sequoia Capital and Francisco Partners, very large private equity business, um, both um, investing in the business and um, their ability, well, Sequoia's particular ability to open doors on the West Coast, extraordinary. Do you think you would have found it easier if you'd been kind of a brand new organization? Or you know, did they not really care that you guys had been around for, for quite a few years already? Well, um, as it happens, they they did that investment from their growth fund, so slightly different than many of their venture investments. But I was uh, talking to the Sequoia partner two or three years after they'd invested in us. I asked him um, you know, what, what were the key things that they think about when they're investing in business. And he said something like, well, uh, this was actually in his office. We were sat in his office in, um, on Sandhill Road um, in Palo Alto. And uh, he said, well, there are only really three things that we think about. The first thing we think about is the people. People are super, super important. The second thing is the business needs to be quite young, so there's plenty of opportunity for growth. And the third criterion is that we need to be able to cycle from here on Sandhill Road to the head offices, the business. And he said, let's, let's take those in reverse order, shall we? So cycling from Sandhill Road to Enfield in North London that's not going to happen, is it? The business needs to be young. Well, you guys are 25 years old, so you don't really <laughs> score on that one either. So all I can say is that your people must be pretty damn amazing, yeah. <laughs> um, which was a very long way around of saying, it's the people, stupid. That's what we invest in. Uh, and I think that's been the core thinking behind my own angel investing since then, is that if the people aren't exceptional, it doesn't matter how good the market is, doesn't matter how smart the technology is, um, it's not worth taking the bet. You need extraordinary people because they're going to have to be able to pivot. They're going to be on a roller coaster ride and they're just going to have to be able to be very resilient to that. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to skip ahead now because that, that was one of the questions I had when we kind of got onto your um, your investing stuff. But, but before that, first of all, I, think you, I feel like you should have challenged the partner on the cycling bit. If you can cycle across the US... <laughs> He can cycle across the US and get make his way to Enfield. I feel like you should have got scored two out of three. Well, uh, that was the main <laughs> reason why I decided to cycle across America, just to prove him wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so kind of jumping ahead to the investing side of stuff, and this is, this is one of the things that I've said to you, is that, you know, whenever... So I'm very lucky in my role at AWS, working with startups, I, I meet a lot of incredibly smart people. But every time I leave a room... And I'm like, that might be the smartest person I've ever met. I'll look up the company a little bit more in depth and you will invariably be involved. And I'm thinking around kind of Sasha from Unitary, thinking around Theo from CloudNC, Noor from GTN. You know, these people are like intimidatingly smart 
in a in a way that you don't find you know across the board and is is so is is intelligence one of the first things you're looking for or is it more resilience is it the ability to manage and scale what is that kind of first characteristic in a founder that you're looking for um i think because i tend to invest in deep tech businesses then to start with i have to be comfortable that the founder um understands this infinitely better than i do uh, because I cannot be expert in, in deep tech and, and all the different deep technologies. So where I might be able to help them is on growing the business because there's an awful lot of similar problems that happen again and again and again uh, yeah. across irrespective of the, of the particular business. Whereas on the technology, I've got to leave that to them. So they've got, I've got to be confident they can make this tech work and they can do magic stuff that um, potentially nobody else can do. Uh, but I think that's only a part of it. There are many, many super bright potential entrepreneurs who I see who I wouldn't invest in because they don't have the personal attributes that need to go alongside the technical ability, particularly for the CEOs. You know, you mentioned like Theo at CloudNC, for example, who is just amazing in terms of his self-belief, but but not to the point that he is uncoachable. You know, so they need to be on the one hand, have an amazing level of self-belief, but on the other hand, also be willing to take advice. Um, one of the mantras that uh, Entrepreneur First sticks to uh, and, and constantly repeats is the importance of um, strong beliefs weakly held. Um, in other words, you have to have an opinion, and it has to be an opinion that you are prepared to defend. But equally, you also have to know when you're actually uh, defending the wrong opinion and be willing to switch sides completely. For sure. With so many angel investments in your portfolio, how do you decide? Because um, I'm assuming you know you can't spend you know a huge chunk of time with all of them. So how do you decide which founders and which companies are going to be the ones where you get a little bit more involved in and do a little bit more? Whether it's you know CEO coaching or kind of talking to the CTO with your technical background, are you giving them kind of some business development help? Where do you make that decision? decision tends to be made to a reasonable degree by the nature of the relationship with the business as well as the angel investment. So um, I'm on, I think I'm chairman of four businesses at the moment and I'm on the board of another five maybe and I'm uh, an official advisor to another four or five and all of those relationships have some sort of equity stake for me alongside the, the angel investment. So that's pretty straightforward. You know, if I've got a, an agreement to be the chairman of a business, then that means I'm probably putting in twice as much effort into that business as I am into one where I'm a non-exec. And again, if I'm a non-exec, it's twice as much effort as when I'm an advisor. Um, and if I'm just on, on the cap table as an angel, then I will still meet with the CEO and the CTO um, from time to time. But then it's very much driven by them reaching out to me rather than me being proactive. Okay, cool. And then, so this is this is one of the things that that I've spoken to you know different entrepreneurs about, and I've been lucky enough to be an investor in, in a few businesses as well. As a, as an investor, so not on the board, not the chairman. As an investor, what do you think? Um, this, is, this is for like the founders, uh, the early stage founders that are out there that are listening to this. In your view, what is the right amount of kind of investor reporting? that an early stage founder who's raised a seed round or maybe, you know, seed plus round, whatever, should be doing to, you know, the cap table investors? Ideally, uh, once a month, 
in that early stage, maybe once every two months, but certainly more frequently than once every six months and not as frequently as once a fortnight because you're not going to see enough change um, on a week-by-week basis to make once a fortnight worthwhile. But I have got businesses which I've been invested in for six or seven years now who have reported on a monthly basis where the CEO has been able, pretty much without exception, to produce a report once a month. And it gives you a great level of um, understanding of what's happening in the business, which is important because when it comes to doing um, a follow-on round, particularly follow-on rounds when things are a bit sticky because you need a bridge or something, then it's super helpful to have had your investor community coming along on the journey with you. They're far more likely to be supportive than if you just reach out and say, um, you know, we have a problem, guys. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things, you know, over-communication, not, you know, maybe not fortnightly, but, you know, once a month, rather than just kind of the silence, 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 oh, can you help, please? Because something's going wrong. Mm, exactly. So I, I jumped ahead a little bit um, because because we kind of went there, but I want to come back. So, you know, you mentioned with um, with Metaswitch, you guys, you know, built it as, as you know, the vast majority of businesses are uh, on profit, making profits every year. Do you think having that kind of business, you know, like a normal business, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, forces a faster reckoning with kind of product market fit than the current startup model, which might rely too much on kind of investor largesse? Um, I think there is there are pros and cons to both models. Certainly, we had to generate revenue from day one, but that comes at a cost. I mean, we ended up undoubtedly doing some stuff where the revenue was the overriding factor. I mean, it wasn't like it was entirely outside our core proposition, but it was nonetheless business that we might otherwise have turned away if we had uh, a large buffer of um, investment that we could fall back on. The other thing that in in looking back uh, on our business, it definitely grew more slowly than it could have done if we'd had uh, a large slug of investment. So those are the downsides, but the upsides are that you don't sit in your ivory tower um, building the wrong thing because you can't afford to. Yeah, I think, and this is just like a, a personal point of view is I think there are a lot of founders, not a lot of founders, there are some founders who, you know, they might raise a decent sized seed round. And this is typically pre-product founders. And then they are so slow to release because they've got that, uh, you know, investor buffer and they never get into people's hands and they never get the feedback that they need. And they are constantly trying to iterate for perfection uh, without really giving it out to customers. And I think that can be a big problem. Mm. Uh, I think that's, that's very, very true. I remember um, one particular very memorable occasion when we were I was running a business unit in, in Metaswitch looking at new technology areas that we might move into. And we were looking at um, graphics technologies in particular. Um, and I went with a colleague to meet with the head of um, one of IBM's development labs in Austin, Texas, I think it was. And... Uh, we were trying to sell him uh, graphics device drivers for this Unix-based workstation. Uh, and he was listening to us and uh, wasn't clearly wasn't going to buy. But he was, we were getting on well with him. And he said, you know what? What I really need is something that will allow a user of one of our workstations to share his desktop with uh, his colleague who is um, on a different workstation 
you know, maybe hundreds of miles away and some sort of application sharing capability. This was in the very early 90s. And they said, he said, have you got anything like that? No, we haven't, unfortunately. But we went back to the, uh, to the hotel we were staying at. There was a pool outside. We went and sat down by the pool, got ourselves a beer. And then Ken, who I was traveling with, said to me, you know, I've been thinking about that. I think we could build that. And we went back. And over the next six weeks, we built a prototype of this technology and took it to various people, including the world's largest video conferencing manufacturer at the time. And they said, that is amazing. We'd like to buy it, please. So that was just one of those really serendipitous pieces of finding a product by talking to a customer. If we hadn't been out there talking to the customer, there is no way we'd have, we'd have spotted that opportunity. No, for sure. I, so I, for one, I'm a big proponent of founder-led sales, particularly at the beginning. Um, even if you're not a salesperson, if you're you know, highly technical researcher and you're building a company, I still think that you need to be out there selling at the early stage, you need to understand what customers want, what customers are saying, because if you're going to employ ultimately a VP of sales, you need to understand what their role is going to be like and what the market is is asking for and is saying when you're trying to sell them your solution. It is a disaster if you recruit a head of sales before you've got something to sell. Um, really is because they, um, you know, they're on commission and so they're going to sell whatever they can and whether it's on the truck or not on the truck, they're going to sell something to get commission. And you're going to end up with your engineers tearing their hair out because um, they've got to implement features that the sales team have committed to, presumably not maliciously, because they thought, oh, that'll only be a small change to the product. But, you know, without having the engineering insights, not realizing that actually it's a very significant change to the product. So you do have to have, in the early stages, people doing the early business development who are pretty technical, I think, as well as having customer-facing skills. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, Metaswitch was uh, founded in 1981. You've been through, you know, numerous business cycles before. Have you ever seen anything like the kind of current COVID crisis that we're in right now? I have. I mean, from a, from a global economy point of view, absolutely not. From a technology sector, yes, I would say that the 2008, 7, 8 financial crisis had some pretty similar characteristics, some differences, but some pretty similar characteristics in terms of the sort of drying up of venture funding. And although everyone's been pretty worried over the last three months, deals are still getting done now. And uh, I think the bar has definitely gone up. But if you're one of the best startups around, you will still get funding right now. And I haven't actually seen any significant drops in in valuation over the last three months for those top companies what i am seeing is the deals just don't happen further you know if you're if you're not in that top five percent of startups then probably a deal isn't going to happen at all but if the deal does happen i don't think valuations have been too much impact at the moment whereas if you look back to the dot-com bubble burst um, or the financial crisis in 2008 And I think we did see certainly more significant valuation drops than we're seeing at the moment, but it's early days. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that that is very strange is almost the, you know, the decoupling between, and I I mentioned this on on an earlier podcast, the decoupling between, at least at the beginning, the the private markets and and the public markets. And even now, you know, the, so we're recording this on, I think this is the 
17th of June. And, you know, the pandemic is, is still going on in, in the US. There are states that have had higher levels of reported positive tests than, than, than ever previously. You know, there was border skirmishes between uh, China and India, which probably isn't a good thing. China just recently announced that they've had, you know, in Beijing, they had positive coronavirus tests and I think it was 100 positive tests. There's obviously the protests and things going on in the, in the US right now. And, and the public markets are just soaring. I don't, I don't know that there's ever been kind of such of a disconnect between what's happening in the real world, what looks like happening in the, the public markets, and, and then how that kind of bleeds into startup valuations and startup funding. Yeah, the, the public markets um, over the last three months have been a complete mystery to me. Um, and I still don't feel at all comfortable that the valuations that we're seeing today on the public markets bear any relationship to reality. So I worry that we're, we're going to see a, a second significant dive on the, on the public market, whereas the private markets at the moment seem to be more stable. And that's partly because I think that there's a longer term view here. And you know, some, many of the businesses that I'm invested in uh, are pre-revenue and won't be making significant revenue for another two, three, even four years in some cases. So one would hope that by the time they come to uh, actually selling product at volume, things will have come back to normal slightly, whatever normal means uh, post-corona. For sure. So not just with the current coronavirus crisis, but with other kind of downturns, do you have kind of a set philosophy or set advice that you give to the founders that you work with around how to manage through downturns, economic downturns? You know, it's been a, prior to this, it was a 10-year bull market, but do you have a solid set of um, actions that founders should follow for when, you know, they are managing through a crisis? It very much depends on the state of the business, but I think there's a general rule that if you're going to take some pain, you should take take all the pain in one go if you possibly can. Having a drip feed of pain over a period of months or even you know years it absolutely saps the morale and the energy of the business and you know, death by a thousand cuts is truly horrible. Uh, so my general advice, founders, is take action early which is probably more, I mean, you don't want to, people talk a lot about not cutting the muscle, which is absolutely right. You don't want to cut unnecessarily into the muscle, but you probably want to take more action early than you would feel like you ought to take, because you need to be a bit brave, because there are going to be some pretty unpalatable decisions that you're going to need to take uh, in order to get the business onto a footing where it can weather the storm, and in particular on the current crisis i've been saying to companies if you can in any way get yourself to a point where you are cash flow positive then that's more important i think right now than maximizing your growth for the next round of investment because i don't know what the state of the venture market is going to be like um, in the second half of 2021 or even as a even first half of 2022 it may be that Money is still very tight then, um, in which case, if you can ride through that on revenue, then that's a great position to be in because you can raise when the markets are right for raising rather than raising because you have to. Yeah, no, I, think that's, I think that's great advice. I think understanding your unit economics from the earliest point, 
even during a crisis or not during a crisis is is incredibly important and i think a lot of startups lost sight of that during the later years of the bull run you know it's, it's the old adage of uh we lose money on every sale but we make up for it in volume but i, I you know i think focus on those unit economics and focus on if you can be cash flow positive for sure i guess that's that's probably really hard obviously for the the earliest companies that you're advising that are still building the product, you know, the really deep tech ones. So do you, do you just tell those ones to kind of keep expenses as low as possible? Yeah, just just cut back on your hiring plans. Um, I've been quite fortunate in that a lot of my uh, portfolio had raised just before the crisis, so had runway for already for 15 to 18 months. So there's stuff you can do then by just reducing your hiring plans to extend that, that runway out. Um, if you haven't yet raised at all, then try to build a plan that allows you to be more frugal in your spending if you need to be frugal. Uh, and what often happens is people start growing the business too fast and then find that it's almost impossible to reduce the burn because you've got employees who are on you know, three months notice in some cases. And you've, you've already taken on these leases on expensive um, premises or whatever, and it becomes very hard to cut back. So always make sure that you can you can fall back to a plan B if you need to. For sure. So I wanted to kind of jump a little bit onto your angel investment portfolio. So when I looked it up, it was I believe it's ninety two companies. Is that is that still accurate, or or is it more than that mm-hmm. now? No, I, I looked at it just before. It's one hundred and six now. One hundred and six moving at a nearly exponential rate. <laughs> So across all of these companies, including, you know, your experience at Metaswitch, what is like the earliest signal that, that you can have as an investor or somebody who is close to the company that tells you that, you know, this company is, is probably going to be pretty successful? Well, I think probably going to be pretty successful is a, that needs to be a, a strong signal because there are a huge number of opportunities for uh, snatching failure from the jaws of success um, en route from the stage at which I invest, which is very early stage, um, pre-seed often, through to being uh, at the point where it would take something very, very unfortunate to cause a business to fail. You know, all, it's a roller coaster for the first five years. So I would never go as far as to say this is going to be, this is pretty definitely going to be successful. If I look at everything in my portfolio now, then until an exit happens, um, I'm always pretty conservative about whether to treat the, val- the paper valuation as being real. I mean, you've only got to look at some of the high-profile things like you know, Uber and WeWork, obviously, uh, to see how valuations can turn out to be very, very unrealistic. But in terms of signals that, that give, me, give me comfort, then they are often about the ability of the CEO and the executive team to change and develop as the business develops. So, you know, there are some businesses I I look at and and the executive team, the founders, are still the same people that they were when the business started and when I invested. And there are others where you look at the team and you think, wow, these people have really matured. They've taken on new skills. They talk about the business in a very different way than they did two, three years ago. Still completely passionate about it, but their understanding of the market, competitive pressures, 
and how they differentiate themselves from other people around them and how they maintain and defend their differentiation is something that makes me think that these guys are onto something and they're building something that will be uh, will be sustainable and will be successful. Okay, so it's really kind of you're noticing the maturation of these founders as, as time goes on and as not I was going to say kind of like the optimism fails, but you know all founders start out a business with incredible optimism and it's you know there's that moment when optimism meets reality and um, I guess what you're looking for as an investor is that you're seeing that they've they're seeing reality they're maturing they're understanding it and they're making it's making them a better business person really yes and and quite often I will see a series of hurdles that they have faced and they've one way or another managed to climb over, um, go under, go through that hurdle. And they might be very different things. It might be like they had a co-founder relationship issue and one of the co-founders left, but the business still carried on and became stronger without them. It might be that they had a seven-figure contract with a customer that was already pretty much signed but fell through at the last minute because there was an organizational change in the customer. It might be that they had a um, a lead investor pull a term sheet, which is pretty horrible if it happens, but it does sometimes happen. And they've managed to find a way through that, um, pick themselves up, gone on and found new investors, even though they were getting desperately close to running out of cash. So there are all these different things that people will face. And when you've seen them cope with three, four, five of these sorts of crises, and the business is still getting stronger, and you start feeling quite com- confident. Sorry, I make it sound like a, a horrible, horrible thing running a startup. But I mean, you, you have to be realistic that, that there are going to be lots and lots of bumps in the road uh, on the journey. No, I like, you know, I, I think people should go in with their eyes open. It's not a, it's not an easy thing. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I only did it for 18 months before, before my startup died. And, you know, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and my, like, I've said this before, my, my bed was like drenched in sweat. And I did the thing that you're never supposed to do, which is what I, I Googled that. Uh, and it was like, you're either suffering from severe anxiety or you've got cancer. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> Fortunately, it's just anxiety. Yeah. Fortunately, it's just incredible soul-crushing anxiety. You know, it, it, it's not easy. It's really, really hard. But then the rewards of running a successful startup, not just financially, but emotionally, psychologically within the ecosystem are, are, are humongous, but it's, you know, it's not easy. There are a lot of challenges you've got to, you got to overcome a lot of hurdles you have to jump. For sure. Interestingly, one of the things that I think you've had Matt Clifford on this podcast before. Yeah. One of the things that he often says to the entrepreneur first um, that would be founders is you need to understand that doing a startup is really, really difficult. Doing a big startup is even more difficult, but it's not that much more difficult, so you may as well go big, <laughs> which I think is true. You know, any, any startup is very, very difficult. Um, so if you're going to put your life into this, you may as well be ambitious. Yeah, no, for sure, 100%. So when, when people are, are you know, pitching you as an angel investor, are there any red flags that immediately turn you off from a potential investment? Uh, yeah. Uh, one is that if I ask the founders a question and they come back with an answer where I think, actually, I could have given a better answer to that question. And I've only heard about your business 15 minutes ago. If that happens more than once in a meeting, then that's pretty much a red flag because it shows that they 
haven't understood their market or perhaps they haven't even really got the product that they think they've got. So their failure to surprise and delight is a big turnoff as well. And you know, I have a whole meeting and I haven't learned something new that was that was delightful or unusual. And that's a red flag too. Very interesting. I'm going to read you a quote from an interview, uh, a podcast, the, another podcast that you did, and it's about it's about Magic Pony. So for for people that don't know, uh, Magic Pony was an entrepreneur first company. Chris, you were the the chairman of it, and then it sold to Twitter for a reported 150 million dollars or pounds. I don't know if you're allowed to confirm the number, but around there, I guess. Well, I can say that the number that was reported was 150 million dollars. <laughs> um, and so this. This is what you said about them. They said they never had a dollar of revenue when they were sold. They didn't actually have a product. They were still a technology business. They had some very smart technology, and they built a team of very impressive PhD and postdoc engineers and scientists. So there was just a particular point in time where they had some video processing technology, which was interesting to multiple people. So kind of based on that quote, my question is, you know, when it's deep tech, something like what Magic Pony were building, you know, should the tech be 100% of the focus? Or should they be thinking around kind of go-to-market and sales as well? And actually Magic Pony, without any of that stuff, were just incredibly, incredibly lucky. Uh, great question. I think it's unfair to say that Magic Pony were not talking to customers. They absolutely were. And it was because they were talking to potential customers that they were acquired because you know, they were talking to all the technology, the usual suspects on the West Coast. Uh, and pretty much without exception, the response was, Oh, this is pretty interesting technology. Uh, if it's as interesting as we think it might be, then we're not going to license it from you. We're going to buy you. Uh, because if it is that interesting, then we need to own the technology. So it became reasonably clear fairly early on that there were going to be some inbound uh, interest in acquiring Magic Pony. And certainly Twitter were not the first people to make a, a reasonably serious approach to the business. So it is definitely not a strategy that I would recommend, though. I think you need to, most businesses need to understand how you're going to monetize the technology relatively early on. We had this belief, which I think is sound, that if you could do something smart enough with video, then the monetization opportunities would arise because the, the, all the predictions are how, how much video is going to grow over the next five to 10 years. And some of the constraints on the network that you know, I understood, certainly from my background in telco and in, in networks, some of those constraints weren't going to go away quickly. So the, the world's appetite for video is going to far exceed the ability of the networks to deliver that video. So we knew that there would therefore be commercialization opportunities. We didn't know what which one was going to be the right one. And we did it face a challenge at, at this point where Twitter said they'd like to buy the technology. Um, we were about at the point where we needed to make some product decisions, going, okay, how are we going to turn this technology into product? And there was a choice between a sort of road to product, which might easily take three, four, five years from there, or um, what was actually a very credible exit for, for such a young business. Yeah, no, it's um, it's awesome. And then, so are the are the Magic Pony team still still staying in Twitter currently? They are. Sehan, who was the CTO, is running an engineering team uh, based in London. So um, his team, most of the guys who were 
in the business are still there at Twitter as the core of that engineering team. And Rob Bishop, who was the CEO, is now out in San Francisco. He went out to San Francisco straight after the deal was done and uh, is, I believe, doing very well in the senior echelons of Twitter. Awesome. That's, that's a lovely exit. Because it was 18 months, right? So around 18 months. Uh, 18 months from incorporation to exit, yeah. So I, it's, I've now got the two largest exits in my portfolio. One of them was after 18 months and one was after 39 years. And uh, I know which I prefer. I mean, I'm all for the long game, but there is a, there is a limit. Definitely. Um, cool. so I'm, I'm going to read you another quote. This is an interview you actually gave in 2006. So this was two years before the iPhone came out. And the question put to you is, what will have changed 10 years from now? And your answer was, uh, with the ever-reducing cost of computing resources, devices like mobile phones will be personalizable to overcome particular impairments such as sight. These mobiles will be used for controlling many aspects of our day-to-day lives, such as uh, speaking remote control for home stereo systems or a portable interface uh, for talking to ATMs. I believe the mobile phone will become a ubiquitous, broadly applicable device for interacting with all sorts of content and making phone calls will be one of its lesser functions. So a pretty accurate capture of what the next 10 years would be. That's, uh, uh, did you get that from uh, electron accessibility that I was giving? Uh, so I believe it was, so I think you were interviewed by the BBC after you gave the Turing lecture. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So yeah, I mean, that, that's, actually that is, that is not too embarrassing, is it? That's, uh, that's reasonably, apart from the ATMs, most of that has actually turned out to be true. Yeah, so, and your question is? Well, first of all, I'd like to, if anybody looks, wants to find this article, it's also accompanied by a lovely picture of, of Chris water skiing. But the question is, you know, you're pretty accurate in 2006 about what the next 10 years would be. Looking forward now, 10 years, what do you think is going to change between now and then? Aha, uh-huh. dangerous, very dangerous. I should, I should quit, shouldn't I? I've done it, I've done it once. I certainly can't do it twice. I'll, I'll not quite answer that question, but I think one of the areas that I'm most excited about is the intersection of AI and life sciences. Uh, There is, I believe, um, going to be some extraordinary movement forward at that boundary over the next five to 10 years in material sciences, in, in drug discovery, and things that we currently do not believe are possible. So I'm, I'm currently doing a fair number of investments at that boundary. And uh, it's not an area that is easy to get funded at Series A because there are a lot of VCs who are very, very comfortable with life sciences investment. And there are a lot of VCs who are very comfortable with um, software investment and in particular uh, AI investment. But there are not yet very many who are comfortable with both simultaneously. So finding people who are willing to bet on the intersection of those two areas is actually quite tough sometimes. But I do believe it's where some of the most, some of the largest steps forward are going to happen. Awesome. So I will have you back on the podcast if I'm still doing it in ten years' time. <laughs> and you can ask me, okay, Chris, point to point to one example of that thing that you were talking about in that weird abstract way. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I'm not going to keep you for much longer. I'm going to ask uh, my final two questions, which which can be pretty quick ones. So the first one I ask uh, everybody. Um, you know, we're, we're all in lockdown now, kind of all over the world, and everybody's given recommendations on on books and TV shows and and films and podcasts. Uh, I want your anti recommendation. 
What is something that you have seen, listened to, whatever, that people should avoid? The daily news reporting on COVID-19. <laughs> I think it's been dreadful. Uh, I know, I understand why they need to um, some uh, encapsulate it in, into sound bites, but it's a really, really um, complicated issue. And when you simplify it, it's just unhelpful, I think. Okay. So the last podcast I did with was uh, Reshma Sahoni from from Seedcamp, and she gave pretty much the same answer. I think nobody nobody's quite willing to go. Uh, you know, there was this book or there was t- this TV show or film and it was rubbish, but I spent two hours or, you know, a book three days reading it and I should tell everybody not to do it. I haven't got a lawyer sitting next to me, so I don't know what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not. I'll find somebody who will give me a, a good anti-recommendation. Okay, thank you so much, Chris Mears, for, for joining me on the AWS Startup Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rick. If you are looking to get started on the cloud with AWS, Our Activate program provides startups with a host of benefits, including AWS credits, technical support, training, and other resources to help grow your business. Head to aws.amazon.com backslash activate for more. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.